other research shows that you can yourself work on this kind of personality traits and change them intentionally uh, so you are not doomed to whatever genes you have you can you can impact it yourself and there are very simple interventions to to do so basically by changing everyday behaviors and your thought patterns and you know this is something that is not really that groundbreaking because psychotherapists have been doing it for decades welcome to the power hour the weekly podcast that will motivate you to pursue your passion and to achieve success. I'm Adrienne Herbert, international speaker, fitness coach, Adidas global ambassador and entrepreneur. Each week, I'll be talking to today's leading coaches, creatives, change makers and innovators to find out their daily habits, morning routines and rules to live by. The Power Hour is all about taking just one hour each day to help you improve your life and unlock your full potential. Whether you want to build a business, write a book, run a marathon, or maybe you're just looking for a spark of inspiration, the Power Hour is going to help you get there faster. Welcome back to the Power Hour podcast. Today's guest is a science journalist and author. Her most recent book, Growing Young, How Friendship, Optimism and Kindness Can Help You Live to 100, is available now. Life longevity is impacted by so many things. And today's guest believes that instead of fixating on miracle diets and supplements, obsessing about our body weight and BMI, we should instead focus on friendship, purpose empathy and kindness. So are these health drivers actually more impactful than our diet and exercise routines? Her work has been published in the Washington Post, Scientific American and New Scientist. Welcome to the show, Marta Zaraska. Thank you for having me, Adrian. Thank you so much. It's so great to connect. I am personally really excited for today's show because as I said in the intro, I'm fascinated with this idea of life longevity. I've heard it actually becoming, I think it's becoming more of a popular talking point. I've heard it on different podcasts and also read different articles about this. And I think, you know, I've heard everything from cold therapy to sauna therapy to different diets and fasting and how sleep and all these things impact our life and our life expectancy. So I think my questions for you today, well, there's so many, but I think if people are going to be living longer, then surely we want to think about how we're going to be living and living better, healthier and, and more vibrant lives too. So I guess I should start off, Marta, by asking you, why did you want to write a whole book specifically about this topic? That's because I think it's something that we really don't explore. As you've mentioned, you know, we really fixate on this kind of the large of reductionist wellness news, you know, eat this specific vegetable or I don't know, do um, some kind of cold therapy or there's so many different things. We are just overwhelmed by, by this news. And um, in the, in the meantime, you know, I was doing a lot of research for my science writing and uh, I was coming across this message that there is there's something, there is much bigger picture out there and there are things that are much simpler and yet far more important. And uh, I myself, I, I'm very health conscious and uh, I was always kind of looking for the new things, what the things I should be doing, you know, exactly should I be doing sauna or should I be eating goji berries or all mm -hmm. these kind of things. And um, I found myself being overwhelmed sometimes, you know. And so I started thinking, is there another way? Am I missing something? And uh, I was doing also a lot of writing um 
not only on nutrition and health, but also on psychology. And, uh, and I came across several big studies uh, that showed uh, that actually things like um, your social connections, uh, the way you live your life socially, your mental attitudes are actually more important to health uh, than many of the other things we are doing, including diet and exercise, which for me, it was mind blowing because I was so obsessed about diet and exercise. And, um, and then I started digging in into it and I've come across hundreds and hundreds of studies and I've talked to over 60 scientists uh, who are experts in this kind of areas and uh, which showed that uh, these exactly things, the, the kind of mental-based uh, health things are more important uh, than any specific little diet or any specific miracle food or supplement or uh, any particular exercise routine. There, there is It's much bigger and deeper and in a way also simpler because those things uh, are easier to do and also very often much more pleasurable. You know, I've been doing all the push-ups and squats and eating broccoli and, uh, and uh, it's all fine. And I still believe and I know that these, are, these things are important to health, but maybe not as important as we sometimes think they are, while we forget in all this kind of crazy running uh, about all this other huge side to our health and our longevity. Mm, it's super interesting and I mean I've heard people talk about it in the context of elderly people and saying that for example when one passes away if they've lived together been married for years then often yeah. they'll say you know the other person will perhaps die you know sooner because it's this idea that they no longer have something to live for and people kind of romanticize that a little bit of like oh isn't it sweet or you know they'll talk about yeah that kind of idea of having a purpose and something to actually wake up and live for and also I think when people are ill you know often they'll say if they've got you know maybe they've just had a baby or they've got something to fight for and they kind of I don't know the human will and desire for to live uh, is, is so much greater so much stronger that they're able to overcome you know incredible illnesses and things like that so do you think that that is well I guess it speaks to exactly what you're saying actually it's completely correct you know it's and it's not just me saying that there is so much research for example showing how important uh, a happy marriage or a happy committed re romantic relationship is to our health and longevity so for example there are studies showing that happily married women are three times less likely to develop metabolic syndrome than those who are stuck in a loveless relationship so and the same goes even for things like longevity you know and um, and that's especially true for men actually and um, uh, and those uh, stories that you hear about some loving couples who have been together for 60 years and then they die within an hour of each other. I actually write about stories like this in my book as well. These are actually true and they make sense. It's so it's so called in science um, the widower syndrome. And it actually does exist that within the first week of your spouse's death, you are much more likely to pass away yourself. And there are biological reasons for that, you know, that that have to do with um, with the way our body handles stress so um so you know it's there are so many powerful things underlying these uh this uh social uh connections that we have and uh, a lot of those stories that we hear uh actually are reflected in science 
Mm, great. Well, I'm, you know, I think the science backing it up is, is everybody expects that now, don't you think? I think everything that anyone now says or writes or tweets or anything, everyone's first question is, where's the evidence? Where's the science to prove it? And so I think it's really, really incredible to, you know, the marriage of the two together with those stories. And also, as you said, the, the research behind it. So Marta, you visited 80 countries and you've lived in six of them. Is that right? I mean, over 80, I've lost count, uh, although, you know, recently I haven't been going anywhere. <laughs> but uh, yes, I've lived in six countries, uh, currently France um, and um, no UK, though, not yet. So across the, you know, you've traveled so many places around the world. So what are the main differences, I guess, that you see between country to country or, or maybe different cultures? And when it comes to living longer, who's doing it right and what can we learn from them? I definitely don't want to say who's got it right. You know, cultures are very different. You're right. I, you know, I, and I lived in very, very different cu- cultures. Uh, I was born in Poland. I lived in US, in Canada. I'm Canadian as well. And uh, I've lived in Singapore and Germany and now France. So there are some big differences there. Mm. Uh, but one thing I definitely find very interesting is how the French uh eat and uh, how it affects them. So you've probably heard about something called the French paradox. And this is basically uh, to do with the fact that the French love their fatty cheese and they love their sweets and their croissant and their wine. And yet they are in general, very healthy people who are one of the longest lived in on the planet. So how is that possible, right? So um, what I came to realize is that the so-called Mediterranean diet, which we talk a lot about, maybe not only about the things that people eat, you know, all the olive oil or olives and, you know, I don't know, the vegetables and so on, uh, but also about the way the way they eat, with whom they eat, because the French are really obsessed about eating with other people. So, uh, you know, in, when I lived in Canada, it was perfectly normal to uh, walk down the street eating a sandwich or to eat your lunch in your car stuck in traffic. While in France, this is a big no-no. I would never do that. It's just such an acceptable thing to do. <laughs> and uh, you are supposed to eat sitting down with other people at a table and of course doing it slowly and talking and connecting and this is extremely important uh, for example studies show that um, among people more or less my age middle-aged people uh, about 61 percent eat their meals always at a table with other people so this is really a lot for example in uk third one third always eats alone. So uh, so that's kind of a very different way of eating, not just about what they eat, but how they eat. For example, my daughter who was born in France and is very French, uh, she's almost eight, and uh, she actually refuses to eat by herself. So if we don't sit down at the table with her, she will not eat her dinner. We had a fight about it a, a week ago because I was busy and she just said, I'm not eating if you don't sit down with me. So, uh, so it is something very important this kind of human connection surrounding meals and um, it's uh, something that can be really boosting the health apart from the nutrients that you're ingesting. Mm, yeah, that's super interesting. I think when I was listening to you talk then, I was thinking about myself and how I like to, I love food. I love to cook. I love to eat and I love to host and have food with other people. But I do sometimes eat alone. And I know that, you know, if I'm working in the city and I'm busy, I can eat lunch alone, like quite happily. But what I've noticed is actually, I I think when I, I'm, I met up with a friend, it was a few, well, 
probably months ago now, given where we're at, but it was the start of the year and we hadn't seen each other for a long time. And so we chatting, 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 we're in a restaurant and the waiter came. I said, oh no, I haven't even looked at the menu. We were talking. And then I kind of quickly glanced at it and said, okay, I'll have that because I know I like that. And then the food came. And because I hadn't seen this particular friend and I just absolutely love and adore her, I was talking, talking, talking. And I think, you know, probably ate maybe two thirds of my meal. And I mean, I never don't, you know, I never leave food on my plate or, or waste food. So for me to kind Kind of you know I was so engrossed in this conversation and in in the moment with her that actually I think I probably ate less I probably enjoyed you know I ate it definitely slower because I was sitting there for we were sitting there for hours um and as you said we probably had a glass of wine I don't think we had dessert we just you know talking talking whereas I think that you know I think that as you were describing it you know having be being social you know enjoying your food but also enjoying the person and the company that you're sharing it with I definitely think that you eat less and I think that you yeah you definitely eat slower because when you're eating alone you can just you know wolf it down get on with the next thing get back on with your work so yeah maybe that's uh, I've heard about the French paradox before but I think the way I heard it was maybe slightly different I think it was maybe 90s referring to the fact that like French women are all slim but they eat croissants and coffee and smoke cigarettes and it was kind of saying that like the, the it was actually saying that the diet wasn't super healthy but the lifestyle and the fact that they don't have big portions and they don't um yeah kind of have this obsession and fixation with food it was more like if you want to have it have it if you don't don't that's sure but you know it's also about it's not just about uh the fact that we eat slower when we are with other people but it's also about actually the social hormones that gets uh released into your body when you are with other people and you're enjoying their company so you get all this boost of oxytocin of serotonin the, the things that's uh that's both are connected to your social life, but also are actually directly affecting your physical health. So for, for example, this hormone oxytocin, you must you might have heard about it, sometimes mm-hmm. called the love hormone. And it's exactly what gets released when you are surrounded by friendly others. Uh, or for example, when you're hugging your friends, uh, th- this hormone also affects our health directly. For example, uh, it, uh, it impacts uh, your bone health. Uh, it impacts uh, your, uh, your uh, the release of some um, proteins that uh, that uh, prevent uh, inflammation. So so these are very direct health effects that uh, that that we can get from being with other people, uh, especially those who we really like and enjoy. Hmm. Well, when you said then about hugging people, obviously right now, that is not something that we're really able to do apart from, you know, yeah. the people in our house. <laughs> so when it comes to relationship and relationships in our social and emotional health, we know that it's bad for us to be in isolation. You know, in terms of those things, we know that loneliness is bad for our health. But as I said, we're living in this time right now in this pandemic with social distancing measures. And it's incredibly difficult for a lot of people. I know myself, I I love people. I'm a social person. I love to be around others. So, yeah, I think for people that might be experiencing loneliness right now, it might be, you know, really impacting them, but they may have never experienced loneliness before. So why is it so bad for our health to be in isolation? And what can we do about it? 
Yes, social isolation is really bad for our health. And, you know, there is there is a reason why, you know, in UK, you even have a ministry for loneliness. Uh, so there was, for example, one big study done in California that showed that people who are socially isolated are two to three times more likely to die prematurely than people who are well socially connected. And the links between social isolation and loneliness and go even directly to how susceptible we are to viruses. Uh, so, for example, there was one study in which uh, in which uh, adults who reported receiving less hugs uh, were actually at their increased risk of developing an upper respiratory infection. So this is exactly you know what we are talking about here. So on one hand we are you know trying to protect ourselves from the virus by socially isolating. On the other hand, it impacts neg negatively our immune system. There was even one fascinating study as well I've read uh, in which a um, few hundred volunteers agreed to be uh, infected with cold viruses. These were rhinoviruses in that case, not coronaviruses. Um, and uh, so they had the virus placed in their noses. And um, those people who were uh, socially isolated before they got infected were 45% more likely to actually develop the infection afterwards than those who were who felt they were well socially integrated. So so if you you know if you feel lonely, if you are socially isolated and you do stumble across a virus, you are more likely to succumb to it. So we have obviously to do something about those feelings of loneliness. I'm absolutely not saying that we shouldn't be uh, socially distancing because we should for for our health and for the health of others. I've been you know on a total lockdown here in France for a very long time uh, but we also have to do find other ways to connect uh, with, with people yeah so this might be a very naive question but it's just come into my mind and you know when you're saying then about being around other people and if you were isolated first you're more likely to develop the virus is there anything to do with I know there's the emotional impact of, of loneliness but is there anything to do with just the lack of I don't know how to describe it but I guess I'd say like diverse bacteria and like exposure if you know what I mean because you know if you're isolated and yeah. you're not coming into contact with lots of different uh, bacteria yep. and viruses and infections like are you more susceptible because of that also? Yes, that's also a very big part of it, of our social lives, the, the bacterial diversity that we get from our friends. So I've actually uh, even participated a little bit in a fascinating study uh, in Oxford, where I actually took part in catching wild mice in a forest uh, to, with the scientists. And what the scientists were doing, they were observing groups of wild mice living in a forest and then collecting them to check their um, gut bacteria. And uh, because the, the mice were so carefully recorded all their movements and who was meeting with whom, they actually could see how uh, you, their social lives were up impacting their gut microbiota and their health and even their behavior. So uh, they could see that those mice who had very diverse friendships, you could say, had the more, most diverse and healthy gut microbes. And very similar thing is happening with humans. There are studies, for example, that show that you when you do contact sports, you exchange microbes uh, with the people with whom you're playing. So uh, we obviously are also exchanging microbes of our surroundings. And if you have a lot of friends, especially diverse friendships from different social, let's say, circles, then you are also get, getting this diversity. And we know that um, gut microbes on one hand affect our health, and but on the other also affect our minds and emotions. So these are all very powerful connections going uh, in you know, both directions. 
Yeah, it really is. It's so powerful. And hearing you explain it like that, you kind of think, gosh, you know, I want to obviously right now, as I said, we're in this frustrating uh, situation. But hopefully as things start to move forwards and ha- as we're able to to mix with other people more, I know for my son, I'm, I'm, I'm not, not sure if your daughter's feeling the same way. I'm sure many children are, but he's desperate to see his friends. He's desperate to, you know, as you said about contact sport, you know, go back to football and athletics and swimming. And, you know, he's someone who's very, very active. He's almost nine so it's just not the same being at home with mum and dad yeah my daughter definitely she was trying to you know do the kind of the online um, skype sessions playing playmobiles with her friends but it wasn't working very well obviously she was getting frustrated so uh, she she's coming going back to school next week for just two days a week that's how much the school can handle for now but uh, Mm -hmm. she's really looking forward to reconnecting with her friends although I'm afraid that she'll be disappointed when she realizes that because of all the safety precautions the children will not be allowed to get close to each other they'll have to stay you know i think there is one meter um distance that they have to keep at all times and things like that so it's definitely not going to be the same and it's definitely not good for our children either you know they 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 need their hugs and their contact with their friends too right absolutely that's what's been on my mind a lot and it's very difficult for parents i think because you know we have to do what the guidelines say but yeah it's definitely been on my mind as well um but one thing that you said that I read Marta was that optimists live longer and when I read that I had a big smile on my face because I always say to people that I am an eternal optimist I'm that annoying person that will always challenge you to look on the bright side find the good I'm always like let's focus on the good here okay so is it really true do optimists live longer Oh, yeah. And there is plenty of research to support that. You, you, by being an optimist and generally a happy person, uh, you can gain anywhere from four to 10 years of life. So that's quite a lot. Uh, there was this fascinating study done in, uh, in, uh, in US um, where the scientists analyzed um, dozens and dozens of um, diaries that were written by nuns. Uh, and uh, they coded uh, the words in those diaries to check whether the writing was optimistic or pessimistic. And because the, the nuns were supposed to write a similar story of their life. So the, the story was very similar, but they were obviously approaching it very differently, which reflected their personality. And they have discovered that those who wrote in the most optimistic and happy fashion uh, actually lived 10 years longer than those who wrote about their life uh, in a very kind of pessimist and down way so uh so there are very powerful uh powerful studies out there also um, others compared um, monks living in uh in i think it was in austria um who because because their surroundings are so controlled for you know then you can really compare the effects of personality because everybody's eating the same thing everybody's spending their days in the same way so uh so this personality can be really seen as a as a having a huge effect on longevity and actually, interestingly as well, um, the, this, there was a study that showed that even chimpanzees uh, in zoos, uh, those who are optimistic, uh, outlive their pessimistic chimp friends uh, by several years. Well, if any, any pessimist listening to that are just going to say, well, that's, that's, you know, that's not good for me, is it? You know, <laughs> they're literally going to see, see the, the downside, but. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. What is it then that do you think dictates this optimism or pessimism in terms of our personality? Because right now I'm actually, you know, I'm reading a lot, researching a lot of things because I'm writing a book myself. And this is something that I've really been focused on is around the power of language because I'm someone, you know, I always say, you know, words have power and what you declare is really important. And I was thinking about this idea that when people who I know, who I would view as being quite negative, their view of the world is negative. You know, we all know those people who everything you say, oh, that won't work. I've tried it it doesn't work you know they kind of they they'll they'll say that they're unlucky or you know the world just seems harder for them and i was questioning myself and thinking challenging myself and my thinking around you know, when you ask questions, for example, you know, are you asking a question that's leading you to a pr- solution to a problem? Or are you asking a question that's kind of validating your bias? Do you know what I mean? So people yeah. will say, for example, like, here's a, a really basic example, but would be like, something say for example, someone at work, they're not getting on with their boss. And the question could be, why doesn't my boss like me? And that isn't going to give them, you know, a solution. It's just going to kind of validate this idea that they think, you know, my boss doesn't like me. Why doesn't my boss like me? But actually, if the question was, how can I improve the relationship between my boss because it's not great, then they're looking for a solution. So it's really been on my mind a lot. And it's interesting that you brought that up about, well, it's personality, because what do you think is impacting this, the whether we have a positive outlook or negative? So definitely there is some genetic, you know, thing going on, but it's not very important. And uh, actually studies show that we can change our personality quite considerably. And what you were describing before, it's something that's considered neuroticism and is also very bad thing for your health. Actually, um, in the Netherlands, it's been calculated that, uh, that the country loses about one 0.3 billion euros, sorry, dollars per year per million inhabitants because of neuroticism. So just because of people being so you know negative about life, and it was lost in health services, in production losses, and out of pocket costs. So uh, so it's obviously something that can actually measure in terms of healthcare services spendings, and uh, and uh, on the other hand, uh, other research shows that you can yourself work on this kind of personality traits and change them intentionally uh, so you are not doomed to whatever genes you have you can you can impact it yourself and there are very simple interventions to to do so basically by changing everyday behaviors and your thought patterns and you know this is something that is not really that groundbreaking because psychotherapists have been doing it for decades you know this is what a lot of people address when you go to see a therapist uh they want to be more um less neurotic basically and therapy often addresses this kind of things so basically just by trying to look more positively at life and trying to see the bright side and just changing small behaviors small thought patterns every day after weeks of that you can actually see considerable change yeah, and it really does work, doesn't it? It's not just this fluffy idea of like, oh, you know, think positive or even this idea of positive affirmation. As I said, I'm a very big believer that, you know, words have power. But I think often when people who are pessimistic or people who are sceptical around this, you know, positive affirmation, I think perhaps what they think is that 
you know, you're just saying these words that you don't actually believe, you know, positive affirmation, say this thing, and then eventually you're going to believe it. Whereas the way I view it now is that if you have a positive mantra or something that you repeat out loud, it's actually just helping you to focus more on the, the good instead of focusing on the bad. Yeah, but you know, there are even actual biological pathways that affect us here because for example take smiling uh you know we think smiling is just something psychological but the thing is that once you move your facial muscles into a smile uh it starts a cascade of of uh, neurological processes in your body it's uh, scientists call it the facial feedback that affects your hormones and how you feel. So uh, that's why, for example, uh, when there are studies showing that when people get Botox, they don't experience emotions in the same way, just because their facial muscles cannot move in the same way. So obviously, if you do smile, you just force yourself to smile, you actually are impacting your, your emotions on biological level. Wow, that is fascinating insight. So Botox, maybe, yeah, that's good to consider if you're thinking about getting Botox, because actually <laughs> not being able to smile is going to impact our health. I mean, this is amazing. And actually on that, so the next question I have for you, which is a big one, is I've heard that sex can increase your life expectancy. And actually the uh, podcast that I listened to, I wish I knew the guy's name, I'm gonna have to try and find it. But essentially, he said that the secret fountain of youth was three S's, sleep, sun and sex and I know that you've mentioned and written about this before so I have to ask you Marta why and how is sex impacting our life expectancy Yes, it does. And the reason is basically oxytocin. So again, the love hormone, which gets released when you have sex uh, and uh, also when you touch each other or you get a massage. And uh, and so definitely a massage with a happy ending is the best of all. And uh, <laughs> the boost of oxytocin is very powerful. And the, this hormone impacts both your emotions, both your the way you feel, but also your actual physical health. So um, so yeah, so th that sex is definitely good for your life, uh, for your your longevity and for your health and what about sun and sleep are they as important all very important sun i'm guessing it's vitamin d this is not exactly my area of expertise but okay. uh, sunshine but uh, definitely sleep as well and uh, actually when you know we were talking about social isolation and loneliness before and uh, actually those impact the way you sleep and the quality of your sleep unfortunately in a bad way and this is because you know we evolved uh, we evolved actually feelings of loneliness uh, and the the effects that um, the physical effects uh, that it causes because when we were you know when we were still hunter gatherers and when we were lonely it usually meant we were stranded by ourselves on a savanna so having poor quality sleep was a good thing as a result because you were more uh, anxious you were more careful about your surroundings and if there was a lion approaching you would be you know much more likely to spot it so the sleep quality really went down with the feelings and experience of loneliness whereas of course today it's uh, it's much different and the fact that being socially isolated makes you sleep poorly doesn't make much more sense in survival in the survival uh, sense but uh, mm. it does unfortunately affect our health badly mm, yeah i think a lot of people have actually been talking about their sleep quality has been poor during isolation but i think often people just put it down to the fact that there's so much anxiety uncertainty and change that they're kind of you know they feel like they're worried and that their mind perhaps is is so busy that they can't switch off but i hadn't actually thought about yeah i guess our change in 
social social interaction throughout the day and how that might be affecting our sleep as well gosh so many things Martha so many things to think about so so we've highlighted some of the things that are bad and that are kind of you know not good for our health and we mentioned a couple of things that are good but what would you say for anyone listening to this show you know the three takeaways if they are you know that we can do to improve our life longevity I know you, you've written about things like volunteering and and finding doing work in service of others but yeah what would you say are the three main things people could do they could start doing today maybe to focus on life longevity so definitely focus on your romantic relationship and if you don't have one yet then at finding one because this is if, among all the things that are important for our health this is actually the most important um, then the second one would be to really connect with people around you so spend more time with your friends and uh, with your family and just connect with people with your neighbors as well i really like one rule which i learned in japan and this is uh is they call, call it the rule of five uh and it means to be friends uh with two neighbors who are living on both sides of your house and three in front of your house so this is something you know very important to just feel connected to your to your community um, and the third thing would be exactly as you've mentioned before uh, to do things for others things for others so volunteer donate to charity even engage in random acts of kindness uh, which actually I've, I've seen on my I've done a little experiment on myself uh, maybe not very scientific, but it was still quite eye-opening. Uh, when I was doing random acts of kindness, I was also measuring my levels of cortisol, so the stress hormone. And uh, I discovered that on the days when I engaged in a lot of kindness, uh, my cortisol levels, so the levels of my stress hormone, actually went down. So, uh, so and there are studies, much more scientific ones, on, on samples bigger than one that support this kind of finding. So, so doing kindness, just, you know, opening, doors for a stranger letting another car in or making coffee for you for your partner you know little things they actually do make difference and not only for our health but you know also for the quality of your life the, how well you are living you know because as you've mentioned at the very beginning it's not just about how long we we live but what quality our life is and how we are enjoying it Absolutely. I guess that's why people always say it feels so good to do things yeah, for other people and that whole idea that there's no such thing as a selfless good deed because you do feel good when you know that what you're doing is, is purely to help somebody else. I think that's it's wonderful. So, Marta, let's talk a little bit about the Power Hour. So, for listeners of the show, they're very familiar with my Power Hour and the reason that I get up early and I kind of encourage others to start their day, have this one magic hour in the morning, which hopefully will have a domino effect throughout the rest of their day. So, Marta, I'd love to hear from you, I guess, two parts, really. One is, what's the first hour of your day like? And the second part would be, what things would you suggest people could do in their morning routines or maybe avoid in their morning routines? So here's the thing. I'm very ashamed right now to say that I do not have a power hour and <laughs> I sleep in as long as I'm only allowed to do by my daughter. Uh, in normal times before the coronavirus outbreak, I just used to wake up with the alarm clock at uh, seven o'clock in the morning and rush my daughter to school. Uh, right now, I just... Uh, wake up when she does and so I check my emails in bed it's very not power hour <laughs> like I'm afraid um, but uh, 
if I were to do a power hour and I'm, you know, I may get inspired to do so. I may tr very well try it. Um, I think I would like to spend this time on either with someone else. So for example, take a walk with my husband, that would be definitely very nice. Um, or maybe just thinking about the ways I can reconnect with other people. So meet meeting plan meeting with my friends for example or think about things I can do for others how the nice things I could do for my friends or you know for my community how I could be more involved and uh, just plan things like that mm, well thank you for being so honest but honestly Marta there is no judgment on this podcast so there's no right and wrong and it's funny that you said oh I feel ashamed to admit it because people often <laughs> think that they're like oh no I don't get up early and it doesn't matter you know it's not necessarily saying oh you have to do it this way but I'm going to challenge you though because you know you said you might feel inspired to do it well I answer at the moment I answer six questions every morning I have them written down in my journal and I answer the same six questions every day before I get out of bed and one of them you know you kind of when you get into doing the same thing every day I think it's similar if you do a gratitude journal or you know you kind of you start off and then after a few weeks maybe a few months you kind of find yourself maybe struggling to find new things to answer the same questions so last week I changed one of my questions and it was actually to I changed it to who would love to hear from me today and then every day I try and write someone down who I'm like, that person would love to hear from me today. And even if it's just a message, a voice note, a quick email, you know, someone just saying hi. So I'm going to challenge you, uh, Marta, to if you do consider, you know, joining me and, and winding the clock back a little bit in the morning, then maybe that could be, uh, yeah, the first step for your power hour. Yeah, it sounds exactly like something I would recommend. You know, this is exactly the with the spirit of the growing young and reconnecting with others, and you know, and um, using your social connections and kindness and um, and friendship uh, exactly to both boost your health and the quality of your life. Do you think that it's a, it's a, it does it work as well if it's digital? Because I know that obviously people listening to the show they might be like, okay, this is great, and I know that I'll you know should spend more time or connect more with a partner or, or a friend or parents, children. But does it work in the same way if we're digitally connected? Because I guess right now you know the world we live in we're more connected than ever. If we're doing Zoom calls, if we're doing WhatsApps, you know Instagram, does that count a little bit or is it not the same? It does count a little bit, although admittedly, it's always better to connect in person because the problem is that, you know, we are still very much, uh, you know, apes who have, you know, our ape bodies and we, uh, the touch itself or looking into other people's eyes, uh, it does release oxytocin. And so we react to those bodily uh, sensations and, uh, and um, uh, but said that there are also better and worse ways to connect online so for example research shows that it's much better to call someone even on the simple phone even without the video than texting because uh when you when you text uh you get less oxytocin from uh the connection than if you actually hear someone's voice so so there are better and worse ways and definitely the video call would be the best here because you can actually look into people's eyes you can really see their facial expressions so definitely that would be the top of the line so if you if you are considering either texting someone or calling it's always better to call Fantastic. Maybe not best to call or, vo or video call them in the power hour if they're not up at the same time as I am, but uh, maybe for later on in the day. And so my closing question, Marta, that I'm going to ask you before we share where everyone can, can find more of your work and get the book as well. My closing question that I ask to every guest is all about time. I am I'm kind of obsessed, actually, with this concept of living with urgency and not taking our time for granted 
and really valuing who we who and how we spend our time. So if you were given one extra hour of every single day from now on, there's 25 hours in the day, what would you use that extra hour to do? I definitely like that idea a lot as a working mother, but uh, I think I would just spend it with uh, with the people I really love. So uh, either with my friends or with my husband or with my my family, just with other people, you know, uh, not necessarily doing anything very, um, very special, just being together uh, calmly without any rush. And um, yeah, that, that's what I would do. Sounds great. And so can you tell us where can people get the book? I know it's out now. And where could they find you online if they wish to connect? Yes. So the book is available in all the bookstores across the UK and also online on Amazon and all the usual big booksellers. Um, and you can also find me on my website, which is www.growingyoungthebook.com. Uh, and I'm on Facebook, no, yes, on Facebook, on Twitter and on Instagram, although I'm not the master of social media, but you can still find me there uh, at, at mzaraska, uh, the same for all the social media. Great. And I'll also share that as well. So if anybody wants to, yeah, feel free to reach out. And if you've enjoyed this episode, then please do let us know. Thank you so much, Marta. I've really, really enjoyed that conversation. It was super insightful. And also congratulations on the release of the book, because now that I'm writing a book for the first time, I feel like I have a new appreciation and respect for all authors uh, as the process uh, is, is challenging. So congratulations on completing that. Thank you so much, Adrian. Thank you. And as I said, thank you so much for listening to the power hour don't forget you can rate and review us on itunes please do that and don't forget to reach out tag us and let us know if you enjoyed today's episode have a great week everyone see ya hold up what was that Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.